0: Hey there, folks. Adam Bush here. Hey, thanks for taking some time to listen to the Pete and Penelope podcast. We've had so much fun putting these episodes together as we interview storytellers who work in industries like film and television and literature. Pete and Penelope is an educational puppet television show for preschoolers about two siblings who spend their days in a treehouse that comes alive every time they step foot inside. We're currently getting Pete and Penelope ready to pitch to networks in the coming months. And if you'd like to know more, you can visit PeteAndPenelope.tv. The Pete and Penelope podcast is sponsored by Creative Audio Lab. Look, if you work in film or television or do commercial video work, Creative Audio Lab is your team of audio professionals. These guys not only mix and master your audio to make it sound incredible, but they create custom scores of music to fit any piece you're working on. You can visit creativeaudiolab.com to check out their work and find out how they can make your audio sound like magic. And now, without further ado, here we go. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am so excited about our interview today. It is with writer-director Corey Edwards. Corey works out in Los Angeles, and he has been part of some amazing work, including the fact that he was a co-director and a co-writer on the animated feature film Hoodwinked. Corey, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. Well, first things first, I've talked a little bit about um, your background, but I want to hear from the horse's mouth. So talk to me about getting into filmmaking, how the whole thing started, what, what drove your passion at the beginning?
1: Uh, well, you know, being a filmmaker started uh, when I was very, very young. And I think I'm, I always tell people I'm blessed to do what I wanted to do when I was eight years old um and sometimes you know your path takes you many different places and i've worked in a lot of different areas of the entertainment business but always with that uh movie making goal in mind um so i think when i was you know uh, 8 or 10 I started picking up a a Super 8 camera, and uh, uh, boys and girls, for all of you listening, uh, Super 8 used to be a thing called film that would run through a camera with a motor. (laughs) Uh, But for a while, I just loved picking up the family camera and hearing that motor click, uh, like like the, the, the motor run, and I would look through the camera, and then one day I realized, oh my gosh, I can go down to Kmart and buy film. And then my brother and sister and I grew up kind of shooting stuff, on our uh, weekends and and summers we were we're very it got very involved. We did storyboards. um like i would I would first you know chart out my superhero movie with a little spiral ring notebook and every one of those little ones. So every page was like a panel.
0: So a real passion for it within your family.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're all in the business now. So my brother Todd is a writer director, and uh, my sister Katie, she is running his company and also a screenwriter and producer. And so growing up in our house, my parents kind of facilitated, you know, well, whatever you guys want to do creatively. So for a while uh, we were all artists and, and, and I do, did a lot of drawing and then we got into puppets and then that went into, um, and when I say got into puppets, like like putting on lavish puppet shows with like cardboard sets for the local daycare. Um, and, and then uh, that segued into radio plays because we had a tape recorder. So it was all the storytelling of like, how can we put pieces together to tell a story? And then, so once we got into filmmaking and also borrowing my church's uh, audiovisual equipment, so that was the, the, the big old video camera you put on your shoulder and then carry the VCR around uh, separately. Um, but all that stuff kind of kept moving in the same direction with just different tools. So finally, I'm trying to nutshell this, but but you know it, it all pointed towards if there was ever a school project that uh, could be turned into a short film, <laughs> we did it and that you know i will tell people i never went to film school i did go to a liberal arts college that at some points allowed me to study broadcasting uh, that was anderson university and i i studied broadcasting and communications and theater but on my own time was how i learned filmmaking and that may sound like well you know you didn't really have that formal film education but if you're obsessed with something since you're 10 years old and you listen to all the DVD commentaries and you, you know, I still listen to podcasts of screen screenwriters on the way to work. So I think if you love something that much, it it's, you, you start to devour information and you start to have a hunger to get better at it. And and I think that's what you need in this business because a lot of times it, it sure isn't money. A lot, it has to be something else. And so uh, I'm I'm very, I feel very fortunate that I've been driven by
0: that. Do you feel like, early on, you got pushback from other kids or from other people or adults or parents, just in regards to this being a bit of a, like a pipe dream, Hollywood pipe dream?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I didn't, uh, where I grew up, nobody was doing this. And so it was kind of a, like, like like our family didn't have any ties to the entertainment industry. So that it didn't occur to me that it would be as much of an uphill battle as it does end up being. Uh, You just are, but my parents always raised us to be uh, uh, of the thought process that if you want to do something, we'll go do it. Um, So, so whatever we wanted to do, they were like, oh yeah, you can do that. Let's figure that out. Let's figure out how to get there. Um, But yeah, it was kind of, we were kind of like uh, the circus freaks in the, in in the middle of town. Like, well, you know, even at the point where my first job was at a music video company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I started as an editor, which moved me into directing some of the smaller clients. And that gave me a lot of practical on-set stuff with crews, and I you know we have that Tulsa connection. But yeah. but even in that in, even in that arena of a lot of producers and production companies, I ran into people saying, "Oh, Corey, everybody wants to make movies." I had a guy tell me that a guy who owns his own company, who owns uh, cameras and and has access to money. He's, "Oh, Corey, everybody wants to make movies," but you know at some point you got to be practical. And when somebody tells me that, I I got to tell you that's like this kind of it's it's like turning negative into positive, but that becomes fuel for me. And I've had many points in my life where people have said, "Oh yeah, you're going to move to LA, or you're going to do this." But you know what? They always they always move back. You'll you you'll be back eventually, or you'll you'll see the reason. And when somebody tells me that, that drives me to go. I I will show you, like through gritted teeth, I say, "Oh, I'm not moving back. If I if I move to LA, I'm not coming back." And it's that it's that. It's almost dangerous how much I romanticize uh, you know, showing all the naysayers because <laughs> it's put me in a lot of uh, debt and trouble uh, getting to where I am today uh, and a lot of difficulty. But I think by my foolish romanticizing of I will get to my ideal come hell or high water, um, I, I don't know. You, you've got to have that rocket fuel to get you up to that atmosphere. Because as I say, when somebody says, oh, everybody wants to make movies, I I kept thinking, no, they don't, not like me. And you've got to believe that whether you're, whatever kind of person, whatever kind of career you want uh, in a creative field or even another field, you've got to believe uh, in some weird, obsessive way. Well, I want it more than anybody else. You don't understand how much I want it. Um, So if you want to be you know the best car mechanic in the world or the best ballet dancer you you kind of have to believe well i i'm more suited for this than anybody i meet and and, and it, it is this kind of it can get narcissistic or egotistical so you got to have people to keep you in check but i think there's a certain kind of drive that creative people have that um you have to balance that at a certain point after 20 or 30 years of people telling you no you're no good at that you you better listen but I had enough people in my life telling me, you know what, you have an aptitude for this. You're, you're, you're good at this. And, and even in my small town environments, they said, you're the best I've ever seen do this. You ought to pursue this. And then you get to the bigger arena of LA and that's when you get your hard knocks where you're like, uh, in LA, there's a lot of people that came from a town where they were the best. And now you're competing with them. So that's a whole other set of hurdles.
0: Speaking of filmmaking, one of your your big initial moves was with a film, Chillicothe. Talk to me about that,
1: yeah. well, that you know, I always have to tell people that that is uh my brother's film uh, I will mostly say he is responsible for that film being what it is. He wrote it and directed it. and then i uh, my brother and I are both writer directors. So starting a company together, um it it was it was <laughs> always a challenge because it was like, well, Whose who's, uh, creative vision do we follow next? So I had written a script, he had written a script, but his was much more um, uh, shootable. It was something we could accomplish. And it was about our lives at the time. And it kind of uh, poked fun at that era of your life when you were out of college, but you haven't started your big career yet and you're floundering in this gray area. So he wrote a very funny time period piece about that, about that time period of life. And we knew we had friends who were actors who could kind of act and be the characters that these characters are, you know, these characters are based on these people. And a lot of them acted uh, as themselves almost. And so he wrote that and directed it. And I, so since I was not the writer director of that, I became the producer, which uh, my, my partners in our company called me first contact. There's a sci-fi nerd reference, but I was always the, the, the first guy to call the investor. And so I did a lot of calling cause I'm good on the phone. And we had a lot, we had a little party with a lot of my parents, friends who were wealthy and owned businesses. And, and we really presented like, you know, so I was kind of part of the fundraising and then in the production of it, I was also the art director because I have that background. So I was driving around in a plumber's van with like uh, fake potted plants and coffee cups. And, you know, so wherever we were, I would like redress the set or get ahead to the next set and. And, um, and, then, and then I went to Sundance, and that was very exciting in 99. And um, that got us a lot of interest as far as representation. It got us some press, and it was the, the reason that once Chillicothe, and it's still out there. You can rent it, I think, on Netflix. Um, but it was, it was not like one of those big sales you read about at Sundance. Um, so it got us a lot of internal industry interest, but it wasn't that Cinderella story like Swingers or the Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch was the same year we were there. And so it wasn't that gangbusters uh, uh, sale where a studio comes in and, and pays money and, and it gets in all the papers. So so it was kind of like it at least got us attention and it, and it created a reason for us to move out here. Um, and then that springboarded to one of those. Uh, uh, investors. We had like about 15 investors. One of those guys happened to be a very wealthy man that we continued to pursue. And years later, after being out in LA um, and, and after Chillicothe, we had a second film ready to go that Todd was going to direct. And it, it completely fell through uh, a few months after we were in LA. And so then we spent several years kind of doing the client thing again until we snagged another investor. He was a Chillicothe investor and that project became hoodwinked, which I know uh, we'll talk about. But
0: So when you look back on the time, the sort of tumultuous time after, after Chillicothe into moving to LA, it feels like things are really moving forward and then to have a big fall or a big drop in, right. in, in your investment situation. I mean, you're so far removed now, but at the time, does it feel like well, it's time to go back?
1: Yeah, I don't know that we ever thought we're moving back to Oklahoma or we're moving back to Ohio or whatever, or Indiana to live with my parents. I've I've never, I've never had that thought, but that was a chilling couple of days when we were four days from production on our next film. It was a, it was kind of a, a dark thriller, uh, kind of supernatural thriller. It was live action. Uh, We had, uh, um, I mean, we had a production office we had about, um, 30 people hired. We had, a, a, you know, racks of wardrobe. Like it was four days from shooting when our investor got cold feet and decided it, 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 it's not like he decided he didn't want to do the movie, but he said, you know what, let's not do it with SAG actors and let's do it in San Francisco where I'm from and not, uh, here in LA, where we got to get all these per- permits. And, you know, he suddenly changed the way he wanted to do it and cut the budget in half. And, we saw a lot of problems with that, and we had just done this Sundance movie that had no um, known actors in it, and it had a lot of difficulty selling it. Um, so we said we're not going to do that again. We want to. We, we had some people that were, you know, like we had some level of actors that were. You've seen them on CSI and stuff. Like we had had some name SAG actors that were committed to doing it, and it was a bigger budget. You know, I think it was a couple million dollars. I don't know. I don't know the exact budget, but anyway. So all that it came to a head four days before the uh, sh- first day of shooting. And that was crazy. And that was where we had to circle up with our agent and we had to tell the crew. And, um, some people, uh, our investor had to literally pay for their, their time. Cause they'd already committed. Um, so there was a certain amount of, a uh, fallout to that, but the fallout for us was, you know, what now? And anytime in my career and my brother will say this too, um, that we have felt like, well, what next is, is the benefit you have as a creative person is you can write yourself out of that hole, uh, that my ideas are my pickaxe to chisel my way out of this hole that I'm in, this, this dark place. So you kind of sit back and go, well, what other ideas do we have? Uh, what are the contacts, what are the avenues? And that's where it, it it was like a couple of years of just doing like just crazy, like writing brochure copy um, helping to produce local radio spots. It was just like uh, scraping up the, the, the client work. And then we realized, well, we have this investor who invested in Chillicothe. And um, uh, another producer friend of ours who was also from Oklahoma originally, she said, you know, we got to go up to San Francisco and court this guy. I think he'd be interested. And that's how, you know, out of pulling ourselves out of that, which took a long time. And also it takes a lot of, you know, effort to move, to LA, so once you're here, <laughs> then it's it's like, well, we're stuck here. Uh, we don't want to move again, and uh, so it, this. And and also, you know, we want to make movies, and if you want to, you know, if you want to make cars, you move to Detroit. So we want to make movies. We're kind of in the place to do it. We're we've tried to make movies in Oklahoma and other places, and it's difficult. And if we wanted to move up and, and get into those studio big leagues, we have to stay here. Um. And we moved here um, thinking we had our second film set up. So that way, it was a it was a real spiral for a, especially for the first couple of days. Going home to tell your your wife, well, I don't know what we're gonna do. And I've had many of those conversations with her. Um, and so it's to, to the point where you get used to what it feels like. So the first couple of times that that happens to you in a career a career like this it is shocking and you're you're you kind of get that cold tingly feeling on your ears and you're like I, i'm dead i don't know what to do but that's you're not going to have that feeling once in this career you're going to have movies i've had like four or five movies come together and fall apart now so now at least it's like oh i know what that feeling is i know it's not forever and as i say if you're an idea person in this town that's your ace in the hole that's your way out you can always go create something new. And so several times in my career, I've had to do that. And I would say the only ways that I've moved forward is when I did something myself. I generated something. And so that was where, uh, with, with Hoodwinked, we had an opportunity. We knew there was a guy up in San Francisco. He had a lot of money. He was interested in film. And so that's where um, my brother and another one of our uh, producers and partners, Preston uh, Stutzman, they went up there and they, they presented, I think, five different scripts uh, that were all live-action, low-budget movies. And then we also said, oh, by the way, we're also into animation. Um, and Todd said, my brother Corey has just finished. I would finished a 45-minute, uh, I'll call it a pilot, but it was a direct-to-video animated uh, adventure called Wobots with a W about a kid and a gang of robots. And it was all computer animated, and I made it with my friend Benji Gaither, who had an animation company in Indiana. And that was the thing that hooked this investor. He was like, oh my gosh, animation. uh, I've always wanted to make an animated movie. So this is a guy that's not in the film business. He just has a lot of money. And then he kind of presented a challenge to us. Uh, We had five different screenplays that he didn't want to make. And then he said, "What, what I would want to do is make an animated movie based on a story everybody knows. And that's that magical term pre-existing awareness is there a story like walt disney used to pick old fairy tales because people already kind of were familiar with them so he said if you can find a hook for cinderella or pinocchio or peter pan and tell it again in a new way um, i would be interested in investing in that and it was at a very low like half million dollar level at that point point. and so we agreed to meet again in 30 days and within those 30 days we must have made a list of every fairy tale that's never made it to the big screen, and we li- we went through Grimm fairy tales and Hans Christian Andersen and all that, and um, and then there was this one day that I remember, and I will always <laughs> tell it as uh, it was Todd's idea. Todd calls me up and he goes, "Hey, what if we did a fairy tale like um, in a nonlinear way, like a crime story? What if we took like Red Riding Hood, which is a very simple story, but we broke it down from each character's perspective, like Rashomon." Uh, We retold the day like Run, Lola, Run or Pulp Fiction. So there'd been a lot of nonlinear experimentation in film at that time. And it had never been done in a kid's film. I don't know that it has been since, maybe on a few, um, you know, kids uh, animated TV shows. Uh, But I got excited about that idea to the point that I want to see that movie. Um, So if I want to see the movie... I know I want to spend time on it. And that's when we, we got some artwork together. We went up to San Francisco and pitched it. And he just said, yeah, let's do it. It's great. And, and you know, that was a very happy day when we knew we were going to pay our bills. And, and we honestly thought, oh, we're going to pay our bills and put this thing on DVD. And you'll see it in, in the grocery store on that, on that rack of like, you know, crummy cheap kids films. Like that was our, you know, we'll at least do that. And, and that began a three-year process where we kept upping our game. Once the script got done, we were like, wow, this feels like it could be theatrical. What actors can we get? And we found these great voice actors who committed, and then he committed, I mean, the investor committed more money. So it became this back and forth of, we kept upping our game creatively. We kept bringing in more elements like, hey, you know what? We think we can mix the film at Skywalker Sound, you know, if you kick in more money. And then the investor would, he would up his game. So I'm trying to put this in a a short story form, but All told, at the end, we we made it in the Philippines with a a company in Manila, that the investor literally invested in this animation company. We pulled it together with a lot of people that that were in that area, uh, just because uh, uh, the economics were so much cheaper. You could make something that looked like it was, you know, 30 or $40 million, and you could make it for a couple million dollars there. Um, And so we made it, I traveled to the Philippines probably 15 times over two years. And sat with those guys um, and lived there on and off. And three years later, we had something that the Weinstein company, you know, was just at the point where they uh, had sold Miramax to Disney and Harvey Weinstein was starting a new company and he was looking for films that were almost done that he could just pick up and put out. And he was looking for animated family product. And so it was this confluence of events where we were just getting it finished and we didn't know who was going to pick it up yet. And uh, the budget, bloomed up to just under $8 million, which was a lot more than our investor was willing to put in at the first part of it. But, you know, we kept upping our game. He kept upping his game. He would get cranky, but we kept saying, you know, most of these films cost $100 million or $200 million. So risks all around, but the the end of that story is that Weinstein's picked it up and they did a very savvy marketing campaign that took it from, uh, you know, a, a... a few thousand, uh, like a thousand theaters was our first expectation to, it was in 3,000 theaters by the time it opened uh, in January. And it was it was almost the number one movie that weekend. And it continued to stay in the top five all that month. So it did more business than we expected. It did more business than anybody in the industry predicted. So that became a new plateau that frankly, we've been riding for 10 years uh, as far as taking meetings, pitching new projects, um, it has continued to to be good for myself, my brother, his company. We're always referencing that movie. Uh, we really want to, we're really excited to make new things now. And, and I think we're all working on stuff. But but Hoodwinked was really that kind of that, that gangbusters thing that broke us.
0: How did you keep story and character at the forefront of your mind when you're dealing with the investor might back out at any minute. I got to go to the Philippines. There's a lot of moving right. parts. I'm also, I'm not just directing this, but I'm also, you know, making things happen behind the scenes. How do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's, well, again, it's that, that obsessive drive you've got to have where there are days where you don't want to go to the Philippines. You don't want to stay up late. Um, I, had, I had to storyboard the whole film myself. Um, I thought we'd have an animation supervisor in the Philippines to take care of all the minutia. It turns out uh, we didn't have the experience level we thought. So I would have to go and sit in review sessions and I reviewed every shot. There's 1,374 shots in Hoodwinked. And I reviewed all of them probably 30 times to the point where I'm like, uh, you know, we're going through different stages of animation. Then you go through different stages of color and rendering and like, okay, we've seen this at half render. Now we're seeing this at full render. You know what? Those uh, leaves on that tree flicker on frame uh, twenty-two. Um, can we can we stop the flickering leaves in the background? Uh, that's stuff that I'm not supposed to be doing. And your background
0: isn't really <laughs> in animation, right?
1: No, no. Well, you know, I grew up drawing cartoons, and then in my college years, I worked as an assistant animator at a
0: commercial animation company. So you had to draw from even that.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I understood the the process of animation and you have to direct the animation in a little bit different way than live action but for the most part it's the same thing it's 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 still where do you put the camera what do you want your actor or your character to do when they walk in how fast how slow and then you know you get the actors in the in the recording booth you're still directing actors but you're you're almost directing a performance in pieces you're not directing their body or their blocking you're just directing their voice and then it's like, once you get with the animators, you're kind of directing the actor again, but now it's this virtual actor and, and you're kind of directing the animator to emote through the, the, the model. Anyway, but the, to your original question, all the, the tiny details that are not fun to do and are boring and you get tired, you have to have something else way down deep that, 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 that boils up in you where you can step back and go, holy crap, I'm making a movie. I'm actually making a movie. You know, like you, you have to just keep saying it. You have to go to a movie. Like you have to just stop, go get some popcorn, sit in a dark theater, fall in love with a movie again and go, oh, movies are awesome. And then you walk out into the sunlight and you go, now let's go make that movie and then go uh, complain about the, uh, the quality of the fur on the back of the squirrel. And, you know, but, but <laughs> you have to do that, all those little things so that, you know, about once a week, I would see a fully rendered color shot that was beautiful, and the character was funny. And I'd say, oh my gosh, it's a real movie. And so you have those checkpoints at least. Uh, But day to day, you get your head down in it so deep that you you cannot see the fun. And you just have to, (laughs) you just have to have faith that every couple of weeks, you'll hit one of those kind of inspiring points. And it's happening on the movie I'm working on now. You get lost in the details and you just have to step back Um, you know, every couple of weeks and get excited that you're making a movie again.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your writing process when it comes to crafting characters from the beginning. Uh, We talk about this often on our podcast, and it's great to hear um, other opinions and other uh, avenues the way that people do this. But talk to me a little bit about what it's like for you sort of from the very beginning when you have the spark of an idea or a premise when it comes to a character. Yeah, I think that the, usually the main characters of a
1: story have to plug into a universal truth or a universal theme that everybody watching a movie can relate to. So if it is a little creature on another planet, if it's a robot, if it's a working mom, you know, I'm not a working mom. I'm a guy. But, but I have to look at that character and go, what is that character about? And usually in a movie, you know, we're all three-dimensional people that that are many things. But in a movie, you look at your character and you say, what is this character about in this movie, in this story? They are, what is the one thing they can't get over? What is the one problem in their life they've never been able to solve? Uh, This character has never been responsible. This character has never said, I love you to another person and it scares them. You know, whatever that is, it's, it's kind of this one thing. Because movies kind of have, you have to get real simple and distill it down. So I will kind of like look at a character and distill them down to what's that one thing that they represent that anyone in my audience will go, man, I've been there before. I relate to that. Or even if I don't relate to that character, I know friends or I know, oh, I wonder how this character is going to solve this issue because I might like to go on this journey with them. So. It's it's not about oh they're a spaceman and spacemen are cool you know it's it's more like you got to get under that even my my kids I have two young boys they I've even trained them now that when we walk out of like uh, a theatrical production of Peter Pan that my son goes Dad what is Peter Pan about and I said whoa you just asked the right question because Peter Pan is not about being visited by a magical boy from another land it's about growing up so. If it's about growing up, what are you saying about growing up? And who are you saying that through? Or like my my current film that I'm finishing right now is about magical little people that live underneath wishing wells, that grant our wishes. Well, really you're asking what is wishing about? And our main character is a cynic. So what is that cynical person saying about wishing? And how are we gonna change what the character feels about that topic by the end of the movie? And if I see a character change their opinions about a topic, and i've gone through it with them then maybe as an audience member i am changing my opinions about a topic or or i'm 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 confirming the feelings that i've always thought were true uh, about a topic so that's why movies are powerful that they communicate because you are cathartically living through another person for 2 hours anyway i'm getting deep but i think that's what it is is that if you start with a character by saying i want him to have a really cool hat i think you're in the wrong place and I get caught up in that, like, oh my gosh, he's going to wear this cool hat. And he has a grappling hook. Um, <laughs> but you've got to say, no, no, no. How is this character like me, or how is this character going to be like most people that go see this movie? And what is, and, and even stepping back from character, what is your theme? What is your movie about? What's that universal thing? And once you find that, not only does every character start to reflect that theme, good or bad, but like every scene kind of reflects that theme. And you start to have like, a focus to your movie and your characters all either, uh, support that idea or go against it. And you kind of have all those conflicts and those, uh,
0: frictions. Do you think a lot of this goes back to the blind spots that each of us hold in our own lives? I think so. I mean, we all have stuff we're working
1: through that we know we haven't solved yet. That's our human condition. And that's like again, that's why I think movies and stories are powerful because I can watch someone else live a whole life in two hours and watch them make bad choices and good choices. And, you know, uh, I am not, I'm not a zombie genre fan. Uh, I'm not a fan of that genre at all, but walking dead, I will not miss that show now because that show is about people making big choices. Um, I'm not into the, (laughs) to the zombie gore stuff, but, they hooked me or like breaking bad. I finally got on the breaking bad train. I'm not into cooking crystal meth. I'll tell you that. (laughs) But, uh, and I would never make Walter White's choices, but I am riveted to see why he's making his choices. And, and, and and, what would I do in that situation? So it's all about watching your character make choices. And when you get um, disinterested in a story, I think it's just because you're just watching stuff. You're just watching a, a physical adventure. You're not watching an internal adventure as well. And so I think, and, it, and you talk about blind spot. If, if it pinpoints a blind spot in my life, I'm like, oh gosh, I kind of get invested because I want to see how this character's going to solve that. Even if it's on a subliminal level, even if you're just going with the popcorn and you just want to see, you know, uh, big guns and aliens, you know, sometimes we just want to have fun. But even the most fun popcorn movies, the reason The Force Awakens is one of the biggest movies of all time and the most successful Star Wars movie ever is because it tapped into a lot of subliminal triggers that we all have, that we all feel. If you don't feel those, you're just watching a lot of cool CGI. And and I think we've heard even from any common layman, any family at a coffee shop after a movie, they won't articulate why they don't like a movie, but that's why. you know, That's why Zootopia is, is doing so well as a movie because it is tapping into a lot of deep feelings people are having right now about gender and race and class. But on the outset, kids are just like, oh yeah, animals in clothes. <laughs> it's a bunny who's a cop. You know, it's, it's, but they don't realize they're also processing super deep stuff. And that's when you get into the really good pixar territory of movie making i
0: think i've heard um even some of the guys at pixar and filmmakers say that where most films and storylines have or at least good films have a progressive complication right in the middle where all the tension is a lot of films fail because they're just progressive (laughs) or Ah. or it's just complicated it's not a combination of the two do you 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 resonate with that or you think that's true
1: I think that in a lot of uh, the Pixar movies, I think that they are showing us that you can beat your character up a lot more than you think you can. Mm. And a lot of their movies, they'll take you to where you think the darkest place is or the worst places for that character, and then they'll go, but guess what? It, that is, it's even worse now. And uh, I heard somebody from their camp say, don't be afraid to really beat up your character, and not even physically, but just really take everything away from them. Um, even to the point, like, like you say, like the bottom falls out, and, but then there's another bottom that falls out even worse. And they've had a lot of false like low points in, in Pixar movies that it's not even the worst thing that's about to happen. Like Suddenly you're into the climax
0: of the movie and another bad thing happens. What do you think that matters? Why do you think we grab onto that so well? Well, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's,
1: um, it's part of surprising us. We, we, we're all so used to formula in movies now. Uh, even if you're not in the movie business, I think we all kind of know when things are supposed to happen in, in three-act movies and typical mainstream movies. So, uh, you know, I, I think Pixar will, will make something get a little worse or a little more emotional um, to surprise us um, or 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 take us down a road where we start feeling good and then pull the rug out from under us. I think in in tragedy and in comedy, you've just got to keep surprising people. So I think maybe... Maybe it's that it's that they they try to they keep breaking the formula that we're used to so they can surprise us. Um, you know, like a, a movie like Inside Out, like I literally didn't know how it was going to end, and that's a big deal. If you can create a movie and a situation in a world where you're like, I don't even know, like I don't know what the answer is for these characters. It could go any which way, and now I'm just I'm just. Um, giving it up to the filmmaker. Now I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm going to be completely like open to whatever they're going to show me next. Cause I am, I'm out of ideas because there's nothing worse than your audience being ahead of you. And so you got to keep surprising them. So I think if you can surprise them emotionally, that's, that's doing something, taking them in a darker turn than they thought and also surprising them comedically or with action, you know,
0: um,
1: breaking that formula. And it's hard because we've, we've seen a thousand movies.
0: Do you think animated films have an easier time doing that because their world is expanded? I guess so. Yeah, I think in animation, you're dealing with anything can happen a
1: lot more than than live action. Um, I heard um, this through, uh, you know, uh, Katzenberg at at, uh, at DreamWorks has said it's really difficult to make people experience um, peril in an animated movie Uh, because physical peril doesn't mean the same thing in an animated movie. You can hang somebody off of an 90 foot cliff in an animated movie um but if you've done your work emotionally it's more like oh i I hope those two people will see each other again i hope that person will forgive that person um so you have to put them in emotional jeopardy and uh, of course now i think that that animated movies are getting so visceral and real that i think we do get a little uh uh, nervous when they fall uh, hang off a cliff but again, there, there's something in the back of our minds that we know it's an animated movie, so you can't put it place all of your climax on physical peril. Um, even when the rules are, are close to reality, even when they're not like Roadrunner, Bugs Bunny kind of rules, you know, oh my gosh, if they fall off that cliff, they will die. But there's something about us that we know that's animated. And I think that when uh, live action movies get too CGI heavy, we've seen a blowback from that. Ah, I'm not really invested anymore, because I know I'm not watching something real. But when Jackie Chan really jumps off a rooftop onto a fire escape and, and, and there's enough press about the movie that, you know, this is a real guy doing real things. Or, or again, I'll go back to the, the new Star Wars. You kind of feel like you're watching real people run through a real space. You, you can get more lost in their peril. But I, but I think, especially with animated films, it's gotta be, there's got to be some emotional peril on top
0: of that. Where do the run of superhero films fall into this because if emotion is key you know i would say that's probably not at the forefront of the avengers or um, any of the marvel films specifically i mean it's it's in there but ultimately it feels like we're going to the theater to watch iron man be awesome
1: i think that the success of the marvel films uh has come from them finding a movie inside the superhero genre it can't just be a superhero movie um you know uh uh, Captain America Winter Soldier is a political thriller uh, with the uh, candy shell on the outside of a superhero movie. Uh, I love the Avengers, but it, it, I think it does... I, I think that it, the second Avengers, Age of Ultron, became more about spectacle and became too many things. It had to be too many things. It had to set up too many other movies. Uh, I think that's the problem that some of these types of movies are having. But when they focus on... you know, Like the first Iron Man... Um, the first Iron Man, Iron Man isn't awesome. He's an alcoholic. He sleeps with a lot of women. He has a lot of daddy issues. Um, and he's going to die if he doesn't fix his own heart. You know, like it, 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 again, it's tearing as many things away from that character as possible so that he really only becomes awesome in the last 20 minutes of that movie when he finally figures out who he is and, and also how to build a cool suit. But, I think that that's, I get more engaged and I think that the that superhero movies have a lot against them. And we've seen it with Green Lantern and we've seen it with uh, the recent Superman movies that if somebody is just um, invulnerable and always awesome, they are super boring. <laughs> so I think that, that the best Marvel movies have very fallible characters and a lot of rules that they have to navigate. A lot of um, uh, you know, challenges and, and vulnerabilities your superhero has to have vulnerabilities, and and it's back to that emotional story. Uh, can they trust each other? Uh, can they get over this one emotional scar they have? And you got to keep it fresh. You know, I don't know how many times we have to see Batman's parents die. Uh, <laughs> you know, we get it, we get it. They got shot in front of you, Batman. I, I think we got to find something new for Batman to be concerned about because we've we've kind of you know you see the genre so many times you start to, I mean, once a genre has been played too many times, you've got to start having fun with that genre. You've got to poke fun at it. And I think that superhero movies, uh, they have to keep going in new directions. Or I I, I hear a lot of people saying they're getting bored with them. It doesn't matter how many fireworks you set off. Um, you've got to find a new emotional story. And, 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 and I think that uh, the Marvel and DC movies will survive if they start telling like, you know, those inside stories, like the superhero cape wearing part of it. That's just the fun on the outside of what is your, again, it's that, that same question. What is the movie really about? Who is Iron Man? Who is, uh, you know, whoever, or whoever they're going to do next, who is Aquaman? You know, you, you, you they better come up with something really interesting for Aquaman to be about because I'm not just going to watch a super a great swimmer.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned the first Iron Man is really about him coming to grips with who he is and his destiny. Because if you think about it, that's really the heart of Star Wars. I mean, Luke in four is having to come to grips with who he's called to be. I wonder if that's a theme that we're all experiencing and that's why we jump on board. Yeah,
1: well, I think we all want to find our purpose. We all, uh, people, people think they wanna make a lot of money or become as successful as possible, or I don't know what, uh, have as many women as possible love them. Uh, but it is about purpose and loving yourself and finding your place in the universe. And Harry Potter taps into that. Uh, Luke Skywalker taps into that. Uh, you know, in, in Indiana Jones, he's searching for things, but he's also like, he's trying to find out what's important. Um, it's, it's always that it's always, that. I think that younger audience members, you're at a certain point in your life where you want to find your purpose. I think it's around, you know, you're just out of college. I think that a lot of people, and when you're younger, I think star Wars grabbed onto a lot of us because we were going through that at the time that Luke was going through that. Um, so that's, you know, and then you can even get outside of it and say star Wars was made at a time right after the Vietnam war where there was so many gray areas about who are we fighting this war for? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? And here comes Star Wars that's got a guy in a black mask and a guy in a white tunic. And here's the good guy and here's the bad guy. And and here's the rebels taking over uh, an evil regime. And so there's also that thing that we're we're invested in in an individual story. But if a movie comes out at the right time where the nation or the world needs to see a cathartic thing that they're not getting out of life, I think Joss Whedon said this about the Avengers. He said, "There are so many things in our world now that are scary that we have no control over. Whether that's terrorism, or sickness, or or the 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 uh, the atmosphere, uh, the, the global warming or not global warming, or what what can we do about our climate." Uh, so you got to go see something that is bigger than that, that is outside of that. It's like an alien army, and and watch people fight and win against something. Because in our lives, we don't always have closure. We don't always fight and win against something. So we go to the movies sometimes to see uh, to see people deal with a threat that's, that's so different and so outside and so outlandish that we get that cathartic kind of um, relief. We get relief that we see somebody accomplish a goal and stop something evil. <laughs> so it's like there's the, there's the Luke Skywalker purpose-driven character, but then there's also that bigger thing that I think there, there will be a cultural zeitgeist that gets satisfied um, by a movie.
0: Before we kind of wrap up and talk about your uh, upcoming work, I want to do a little rapid fire, which I do every episode. Um, oh, yeah. Get some of your favorites right out of the gate. I want to know, favorite film?
1: Okay. I thought a lot about this. And what I'm going to do is take Star Wars A New Hope off the table because it's a cliche. It probably is my favorite, but I'm going to just take all Star Wars off the table because mm-hmm. that's... Uh, so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up a favorite film that maybe a lot of people don't know about. It's one of my tops, one of my favorite films. It's called Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. It is a Miyazaki film, and it is, it is kind of a, his Star Wars. So go out and find Nausicaa, N-A-U-S-I-C-A-A, I think. Uh, so yeah. It's it's greatly inspiring to me.
0: With that uh, second question, most influential film.
1: Most influential film, I thought a lot about. Again, I'm going to take Star Wars off the table. Uh, I would say Back to the Future.
0: Oh yeah, I've heard, I've heard that before. The the It has the come first back one, a lot. Or just yeah. or the trilogy.
1: The the first one. Okay. The, the, how tight it's put together, just how it was made, how it is made, how the editing is done, how the music plays with the, the visuals and just the perfect script that it is. So that, as far as influencing me on the work I'm doing now, I go into a lot of rooms and I pitch that tone. You know, like Back to the Future. <laughs> there are stakes, there's drama, but it's fun and it's light. And remember when movies were fun? It's So a lot of that. I can hear the Back to the Future theme and just... Uh, go out and and face the
0: world. It's great. Favorite television show of all time. Of all time. So you keep putting of all time on here. Yeah.
1: I am going to go with, I have so many. I'm going to go with Lost. because Because it hit on so many levels. It hit, you know, your basic adventure show. It hit on mysteries. It changed the way television, I think, is made. And it told it has some individual episodes that I still think about as far as a character's journey and surprising the audience and saying you thought this character was one thing and they're another. Anyway, it hits on many, many levels. I could I could say Firefly, I could say Doctor Who, I could say Battlestar Galactica. There are a lot of others, but I have to go with Lost because I feel like it's the epic, the epic island
0: of of television. Do you feel like you're gonna get blowback from my hundreds? Of, or my tens of listeners because of the ending of Lost?
1: Well, I don't think you should judge an entire series on the ending, first of all. I think we have gotten into a, a, a situation with a, our culture where if, you, if that last episode doesn't doesn't tie up every single thing. So my overall experience with the series far outweighs any opinions I have on the ending. That said, um, I liked the ending. I understood what they were doing. Um, so yeah. And and you know what? It's okay to have a different opinion. Let me just put that out in the internet.
0: <laughs> let, think, me, let me blow
1: those minds. I don't think people uh, are that. Okay we can all disagree. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. Uh, two of my favorite questions. Um, favorite favorite story from any any medium. Okay, this was tough.
1: But I and this is a surprising answer to myself as well. Favorite story in any medium i will probably go with the wizard of oz
0: oh that's a that's a
1: good one it is so it has so many archetypes that we still pull from it will probably be a story told for the next hundred years it's been told for 100 years it's been told in 50 different ways and i just love the clarity of it the simplicity of it and that each character kind of represents a want it's 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 very clean and i love what it says too that Maybe what you need is in you all along. Maybe the place you came from, your 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 roots, your values, um, they're with you, and you don't need to find it out there. You're, you're always going to come home in the end. So I I think I, I like it as a as a very complete, valuable story.
0: And then last but not least, favorite character of all time. Now this was this kept me up at night.
1: Um, you know. <laughs> Because I, I can either love a character because they don't change, or I can love a character because they went through extraordinary change. I, I can't pick from literature because I know I'm a movie guy. Uh, characters are more developed in television, but I got to go with movies. So I'm, i I think I'm landing on Indiana Jones uh, because I would I would watch him do anything. I would put him in any situation and watch him handle it. Um, so that's why I say him, I uh, close second is Mal Reynolds from Firefly because he's just so interesting as far as dark and light and funny and intense. And, but I'm uh, Indiana Jones. I'll, I'll say that.
0: Well, Corey, before we go, uh, I want our listeners to know more about you and how to follow you and where you're going, what you're working on that you can tell us about a lot of the, a lot of my interviewees can't tell us about everything, but first, um, where can people follow you and just read more about you?
1: um they can always go to Corey coryedwards.com c o r y e d w a r d s.com that's my blog and that's where any anything new i'm working on i try to talk about and then i love twitter so i'm on the twitter at @realcoryedwards and yeah i think those are the those are the two main places i'm i'm on twitter all the time
0: and then tell us what you're working on
1: um i think i can talk about this now uh the producers have been kept me very tight-lipped, but I've for a couple of years now been working on a film called Wish. And it should be out this year, I'm hoping. Uh, so look for that. It is about the secret world of wishing wells. It is an animated fantasy adventure. And uh it's really turning out to be a very beautiful, uh, exciting film. I'm really happy with it. We're we're in final animation right now. And I have already locked up my next deal to do my next film and i can't say too much about that but probably by the end of april beginning of may there's going to be an announcement about it so it's going to be i can tell you it's a it's another animated movie and it is a superhero action comedy that i that i am writing and directing so
0: um so yeah that's it that's killer well thanks so much for taking your time your afternoon or i guess your morning where you are and um we'll be talking to you soon it was great chatting thanks Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to follow along as we create the show, you can visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook just by searching Pete and Penelope. You can also visit our website, peteandpenelope.tv. Hey, if you like the podcast, rate us on iTunes or send us an email at info at peteandpenelope.tv. See you later.